Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This lecture event is a part of the 11th Annual Kosciuszko Chair Spring Symposium in honor of Lady Blanca Rosenstiel. This event is sponsored by the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies and the Center for Intermarium Studies. This afternoon, we will be hearing from Nicholas Szekierski. Nicholas Szekierski is a PhD candidate at the Institute of History at the Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw. He's writing his dissertation on Herbert Hoover and the American Relief Administration in Poland after the First World War. He is also a translator. Mr. Szekierski, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Jerzy Kwiatkowski was born in Vienna in 1894. The family soon moved to Czernowitz in Bukowina, that's Czerniowce in Polish, then still part of the Habsburg Empire, where Jerzy attended school. He studied law in Vienna and at the university in Czernowitz, completing his doctorate in 1919. His father, Stanisław, was a respected surgeon in the city hospital and a notable member of the local Polonia, helping to establish Polish public schools and increasing the political weight of the Polish community by appeals for Poles to indicate Polish as their native tongue in the 1910 census. He also became a representative in the local government in 1911. Here in these first two photographs, we have um, Jerzy with his family. He's the young boy on the right side of the photograph, uh, on the uh, in the first photograph, and then he's seated uh, with glasses in front of the gentleman with the black spectacles on the right. This was the uh, imperial uh, gymnasium or middle school in Chernowitz where he attended. I was in Chernyovce, Chernowitz three or four years ago, and here's a photograph of the town hall in the middle of the city, a very nice city. It's in Ukraine now, and here's the university where uh, Jerzy attended. Jerzy, who cooperated most closely with his father out of the three sons in his activities, was enlisted into the Austro-Hungarian army in November 1914 and sent to the Eastern Front, seeing combat as far as Demblin and Wutsk, and in the Serbian, Montenegrin, and Slovenian lands. He was then transferred to the high command near Vienna, completing a cipher course and serving as a translator in radio monitoring stations intercepting Russian dispatches. In Bukovina, at war's end, Kwiatkowski was involved in helping refugees returning by the thousands from Russia and Galicia. He made contact with the 4th Polish Rifleman's Division under General Lucian Zaligowski, engaging in recruiting work for the force among refugees. 
hosting the general staff in the Kwiatkowski family home. He was later assigned to the cipher section of the second department of the Polish general staff, finally being demobilized in late 1921. During the interwar period, Kwiatkowski would hold various positions in the Polish banking system and in newspaper publishing. Jerzy Kwiatkowski was no stranger to tragedy, even before spending two years in German concentration camps. In August 1920, his youngest brother was killed in battle against the Bolsheviks during the Polish-Soviet War. And in 1925, a year after his marriage to Maria Bożydar Horodeńska, his newborn daughter, Yulinka, died after just two days. In 1939 alone, he lost his wife to illness in February, his mother to a wound sustained during the bombing of Warsaw in September, and his mother-in-law died of a heart attack in November. The three people closest to him were gone. Rather than succumbing to sorrow, he threw himself into his work as the director and part owner, a position he had held since 1938, of the Pioneer Factory in Warsaw a producer of ammunition-making machines, airplane parts, and machine tools. It had been taken over by the Germans once the occupation of Poland began, though the former management was retained. A cell of the Polish Home Army, the Armia Krajowa, the largest underground resistance organization in Nazi-occupied Europe, was formed in the factory. A clandestine shooting range was assembled in its basement, weapons were procured, and later, firing mechanisms for the Buskavica, or lightning, submachine guns were surreptitiously produced. In the first weeks of the Warsaw Uprising in August 1944, the machines were carted off and the factory was set on fire. The city would be left in ruins. Fiatkowski did not see Warsaw in flames. In February 1943, he had been arrested in his office and charged with conspiratorial activity in the headquarters of the security police on Shucha Avenue in Warsaw. The late Richard F. Starr, former associate director of the Hoover Institution and my professor at San Jose State University, was brutally interrogated there as a teenager by the Gestapo, causing permanent hearing loss in one ear. After a month-long stay in the infamous Paviak prison, Jezer was sent to the Konzentrationslager K.L. Lublin, known as Majdanek, and became prisoner number 8830. During the three acts of his imprisonment, he worked as a gardener, a clerk in the camp office, and as a manual laborer. Each position gave him a unique perspective on dehumanization and genocide intrinsic to the concentration camp system. And just a few words about the photos here. You have uh, Kwiatkowski on the left in his um, Austro-Hungarian uniform and on the right already in his Polish uniform. Initially planned as a laborer and POW camp for Soviet soldiers, Majdanek also took on the role of an extermination camp. Estimates vary as to how many people were killed there, but the director of the State Museum at Majdanek, Dr. Tomasz Kranz, conservatively estimates that there were 78,000 victims. 
59,000 of them Jews, with the next largest group being Poles, followed by Russians, Belarusians, Ukrainians, and other minority groups. As many as 300,000 prisoners came through the camp over the course of its operation. Here we have a view of um, one of the barracks at the Majdanek camp. Um, according to Kwiatkowski, what he wrote, the uh, bunks were even higher and the choice bunks for the people who didn't want to make their beds since there was a very strict regimen about how beds were to be made were at the top. And um, although at the top, you might be subject to water leaking on you from the, the roof. And uh, the camp itself is the best preserved of all the concentration camps. Of course, the ones further to the east were virtually uh, destroyed by the Germans as they were retreating. But the Red Army made it to Majdanek so quickly that they were unable to, uh, to destroy everything. So there are numerous barracks, uh, crematoria, and other buildings that are still very well preserved. We have a view here of another barracks, uh, and here you have thousands of pairs of shoes that were left after uh, the prisoners. I'll mention a few more things about this in a moment, but Majdanek was also a sorting facility for uh, property that was looted from the Jews who were sent to their deaths in the eastern camps. Uh, so not only valuables like hard currency, gold, jewelry, but also tons and tons of luggage, clothing, uh, shoes. In the late stage of his stay at the camp, uh, Yezhir went to one of the warehouses, which apparently hadn't been looked into for a while, and there were just mounds and mounds of pillows that were rotting because there was water dripping through the ceiling, and there were also rats nesting among the pillows. So huge, huge volumes of material. Gifted with a prodigious memory and an eye for detail, Kwiatkowski's memoir traces his stay from the initial arrival at the camp, describing freezing nights in drafty barracks, leaking latrine crates, bodies being laid out and counted along with the living prisoners at several subsequent roll calls, and eventually disposed of in the crematoria. He speaks of the immense wealth accumulated by certain capos and other prisoners, looted from the warehouses that processed mountains of property taken from Jews who had been sent to their deaths in Sobibor, Belzec, and Treblinka. Though hard currency, gold, and other valuables could buy food and comfort for a time, they often brought tremendous misfortune. Kwiatkowski shares the fates of a number of camp inmates whose murders were staged as suicides or who met other grisly ends sacrifices to the quote-unquote golden calf. Although Kwiatkowski doesn't mention it, two former Majdanek commandants were tried and executed for corruption by the collapsing Nazi regime in April 1945. Numerous prisoners were hanged on the camp gallows, brutally whipped, and sometimes strangled or beaten to death by the SS men or prisoner capos. The slide here shows a map of the camp that was drawn from memory, as far as I understand it, by Kwiatkowski after the war. And then here is a map of Field 3, where Kwiatkowski 
was kept for most of his time at Majdanek. Uh, one of his nicknames is the gardener from field three, since he was in charge of the gardening for a, a substantial portion of, of his stay, um, landscaping, planting flowers, replanting trees, all kinds of things that were uh, he was ordered to do by the SS men to beautify the, the camp. Kwiatkowski was a witness to Operation Harvest Festival ordered by Heinrich Himmler, which entailed the murder of over 18,000 Jewish prisoners at Majdanek alone on November 3rd, 1943. This was the um, tail end of Operation Reinhard, which was the deadliest phase of the Holocaust from 1942 to 43. And actually as part of Operation Harvest Festival, over 40,000 Jews would be murdered in just two days, November 3rd and 4th, 1943. Although he did not directly observe the mass shootings, he watched as thousands of Jews were separated from the rest of the prisoners during the morning roll call, friends and acquaintances among them, and heard the sound of automatic gunfire throughout the day, only partially muffled by music loudly playing on several temporary loudspeakers. Colleagues of his who were able to hide in nearby buildings observed the killings up close and related the details to Gatkovsky soon afterwards. The slide here is from an unknown photographer, apparently from October of 1943, with smoke rising from Majdanek. This was taken from the Jishonta village, which was directly adjacent to the camp, and in fact, was the camp was being built um, in 1942, some of the houses were confiscated and torn down so the camp could be built out. So this photograph, possibly taken by a member of the underground resistance, shows what's likely uh, bodies were being burned in, in open air pits when the uh, crematoria either broke down or were unable to keep up with the, the capacity. A picture here is of, um, of one of the crematoria at Majdanek. I believe there were seven of them, the blue being the traces of the cyclone B gas that was used to kill the prisoners. In one of the chapters of his memoir, Gatkowski um, titles it, The Dead Arrive, and he writes, a transport of gravely ill prisoners from Auschwitz arrives in the evening. There are about a thousand of them. During the unloading of the rail cars, 290 corpses remain inside. They died on the way. The transport consists of people who are so sick that they can't walk. They are driven to the bathhouse in cars. There they lay them on the concrete floor in an unheated room. Another 27 died by morning. The washing lasts all day. They bring them to field four, and we go there after the roll call to fill out questionnaires. The clerks from field four help us. The new arrivals are mainly tuberculosis sufferers in the final stage. Many of them have phlegmon, dysentery, enteritis, or other chronic incurable diseases. The condemned, we wonder why these people were sent to us instead of letting them die in peace in Auschwitz. All the nationalities are among them. Poles, Germans, Frenchmen, Dutchmen, Italians, Albanians, Yugoslavians. There is a professor from a university in Paris, an Italian composer, 
and opera conductor, doctors, and a large proportion of intelligent people in general. The sick are deprived of even a pretense of medical care. In the end, modern medicine might already be useless for the majority of them. And the photograph here is of one of the crematoria at Majdanek. In the background, you can see um, part of the uh, panorama of Lublin. Majdanek is technically part of the city of Lublin. And um, now that the city has expanded as much as it has, many people's homes and apartments basically look out onto the camp. So it's a, a permanent reminder. Though overwhelmingly a tragic tale, Kwiatkowski's reminiscences also share stories of hope and faith. In one chapter titled A Hand Through the Barbed Wire, Kwiatkowski speaks of Mary, a close female friend who managed to have food, money, and medicine smuggled into the camp by civilian laborers. The Polish Red Cross and Central Welfare Council, the Rada Główna Opiekuńcza, also provided relief through official channels. Prisoners helped each other as they were able to. This was particularly the case among the Catholic Poles who collaborated with representatives of the home army imprisoned in the camp, mostly as an intelligence network, uh, as a plan to liberate the camp never came to pass. In another chapter, Piatkowski titles it The Mausoleum and the Turtle. In the blink of an eye, Boniecki, that is Maria Albin Boniecki, a Polish artist, knows what to do and starts working on the model of a turtle 10 times its normal size, the one that works for the Germans in all of the factories and in every workshop was drawn in coal on the walls and chalk on the ground as a symbol of slow work. Kops, an SS officer, is thrilled and the prisoner is too each for their own reasons, an example of the theory of relativity. As the gardener, I am supposed to choose the right spot in the garden and create the proper surroundings. I choose a place by the gate so that the turtle can be seen by everyone leaving for work, as well as passerby from other fields. I build a large pedestal of crushed stone, two meters wide and one meter high. There's a large amount of limestone available on our field from our own quarries, as well as gravestones from the Jewish cemetery in Lublin. They were brought by the civilian wagon drivers and were already broken into pieces, destroyed at once. They are mostly sandstone, but you'll also find gray marble and expensive black Swedish granite. Weathered Hebrew inscriptions covered in moss, some of them fresh with glittering gold letters, there's a commando of around 30 Steinklopfer working in the field, prisoners with weak legs who, while sitting, break down these funerary monuments to rubble to pave the entry road and paths. I, I take pieces of these tombstones to form the pedestal and at least symbolically protect them from final profanation. May they lift the symbol of the camp's resistance and become an integral part of it. I plant a row of junipers as a background and a flower bed of marigolds and irises in front. Then I sow grass around the pedestal and plant out morning glories. 
the turtle stirs up great cheerfulness among the prisoners and inspires various funny observations. Later, I learned that a photograph of our turtle appeared in some underground newspaper. And here you have the turtle at the Majdanek uh, Museum. Having recovered from a near-fatal bout with typhus, periodically epidemic in the camp, due to the abhorrent sanitor sanitary conditions, Fiatkovsky left Majdanek with the last group of prisoners in late July 1944, hours before forward units of the Red Army swept into the area. Given the rapid advance of the Soviets, the camp was seized practically intact. The Germans hadn't been able to destroy the evidence of their crimes. After a month in Auschwitz, where conditions were actually described as better for prisoner laborers than at Majdanek, Kwiatkowski was transferred to Sachsenhausen near Berlin. There he served as a translator in the camp office until April 1945 and was finally liberated by American troops on May 3rd during an evacuation march. Here you have from the State Museum at Majdanek a uh, list of the final prisoners to leave the camp. And you can see under number 8830 above that rusty paperclip mark, uh, Kwiatkowski Yezhin. Kwiatkowski did not try to suppress the memory of the murderous brutality that he had witnessed, quite the opposite. Out of a deep sense of responsibility to the victims and loyalty to the friends he had lost, he promised himself to do everything in his power to bring the criminals to justice. As he shared with an interviewer several decades later, during my entire stay at Majdanek, I assiduously memorized facts, events in the camp, the names of the murderers, their habits, crimes, and orders. By June of 1945, he had already sent a list of names of the worst camp functionaries and their activities at Majdanek and Sachsenhausen to the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs in London. The archives of the ministry were deposited at the Hoover Library and Archives at Stanford University after the war, in part thanks to the famed underground courier and witness to the Holocaust, Jan Karski, whose papers are also at Hoover. Uh, the monument here was built in 1969 at the camp uh, in tribute to all those who had died there and uh, suffered as prisoners there. In the distance, you can see a domed structure which contains tons and tons of ashes of the victims who were recovered or which were recovered from the site and placed there as a kind of open air uh, mausoleum. In November of uh, 1945, Kwiatkowski was assigned to the special staff of the 1st Armored Division of General Stanisław Maciek, a Polish division occupying part of Germany, Germany along the Dutch border in the British occupation zone. Among Kwiatkowski's tasks were helping displaced persons, the multitudes of forced laborers who had been sent to Germany, and playing various roles in nascent political and concentration camp prisoners associations. Here you have a photograph of one of these groups. This is the uh, Związek Byłych Więźniów Politycznych Niemieckich 
Abozov Koncentracyjny, that's the Association of Former Political Prisoners of German Concentration Camps. And Kwiatkowski is at the far left with the mustache and the beret and the tie. Uh, here he would begin his work on his memoir in earnest, based on notes and an outline that he would expand upon, working quickly before facts faded from memory. He used a typewriter loaned to him from Polish scouts, typing on the back of blank forms that he found in the German paper company where he wrote. He sat in the unheated room in his coat and hat, finally finishing his reminiscences shortly before Christmas 1945. The cost of his dedication to the task was frostbitten fingers that he had to rehabilitate with quartz lamp therapy for several months afterwards. On the left here, we have a page from uh, Kwiatkowski's original manuscript, and on the right is a fragment that was taken out by the censorship. Despite the tremendous effort put into the undertaking, it would take another 20 years before the memoir would finally see publication. Kwiatkowski's attempts to generate interest in his work came to naught. Explanations ranging from market realities for Polish memoirs, he had moved to Chicago and then New York after the war, to outright rejections claiming that it wasn't worth publishing. An early suggestion to translate the book into English came to nothing as Kwiatkowski couldn't afford it. Finally, in 1961, thanks to a meeting with a fellow former prisoner, Kwiatkowski learned of the publication program at the State Museum at Majdanek, which had been established before the war even ended. After sending his manuscript there, he received a reply that affirmed interest in publishing the memoir. Heartened by the news, Kwiatkowski noted in a letter that he wasn't looking for literary laurels and he was willing to put his prisoner number in lieu of his name as the author and they, that he just wanted to preserve what he had witnessed for history. Kwiatkowski's enthusiasm was tempered though by a lengthy and invasive editorial process directed by the ideological dictates of Poland's communist censors. The book was finally published in December, 1966 widely praised after its release as a powerful and comprehensive testament to the horrors of the camp, the book was a success in Poland and among the Polish diaspora. Although Kwiatkowski wouldn't live to see the translation of his memoir into English before he passed away in New Jersey in 1980, the Polish edition, republished in 1988, would serve as the ember that eventually brought forth the volume recently published by the Hoover Press. In the early 1970s, Kwiatkowski corresponded with Witold Sforakowski, by then the retired curator for Polish and Eastern European collections and associate director of the Hoover Institution. The familiar way in which they addressed each other in the two letters that have been found suggests a friendship that likely stretched back to their early years in Bukovina, then still under control of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Having convinced Jezre to send his archive to Stanford, by 1976, 10 large boxes of Kwiatkowski's papers had been secured in the, Hoover, in the Hoover Library and Archives. 
Finally, in 2018, Dr. Maciej Szykierski, now curator emeritus of the European Collections and also my father, was contacted about the papers by Dr. Dorota Niedziałkowska, curator of the exhibition department of the State Museum at Majdanek. The museum was interested in publishing a new edition of Kwiatkowski's memoir and collaborating with Hoover on an English translation. Following extensive research into the Kwiatkowski papers by the staff of the museum, along with scans of numerous photographs and documents provided by Hoover, a new edition of 485 dni na Majdanku was released in Polish later that year. And you can see it here on the left. That is the new Polish edition that was released three years ago. And on the right is the English translation that was released just last month. What can be considered the definitive version of Kwiatkowski's memoir based on his original 1945 manuscript held in the Hoover archives and now free of communist era censorship and heavy-handed editing was translated by me and Witold Wojtaszko and became the recently released English edition. A guiding principle of the translation was to stay true to Kwiatkowski's raw and honest recollections, written down while the memory of this ordeal was still fresh. Besides necessary editorial refinements, namely the contemporizing of spelling, punctuation, and typography, the memoir was left mostly unchanged by the Polish editors. The main additions were footnotes used to clarify terms and references that might not be familiar to the average reader. The English edition includes these footnotes and others to explain lesser-known cultural, historical, and linguistic references. The primary difference between the Polish and English editions is the attempt in the, in the latter to pare down the many German words used by Kwiatkowski. Although his knowledge of German was crucial to his insightful understanding of the workings of the camp, for the English reader, its profusion was a distraction. This is especially the case with the various um, prisoner ranks and also SS ranks, where in many cases, you know, you'll have a dozen German uh, terms in in a page or half a page, which is just, uh, I think, overwhelming for, for English readers. Generally, um, the initial instance of an often used term appears in the text in German in italics with the definition in a footnote and further instances appear in English, uh, though this is not, not always the case. The reader also has access to an extensive glossary of German terms, which was the nomenclature of the camp. Words and phrases from other languages like Latin and French are defined in footnotes. And photos from the State Museum at Majdanek and the Hoover Library and Archives, uh, some of which I shared today, are also in the book. The photo here is the one used on both covers of the book of Kwiatkowski after the war. And on the right is a photo I took when I visited uh, Majdanek three years ago. There's uh, with those other photos of a butterfly inside of the uh, crematorium. Jerzy Kwiatkowski knew the Majdanek camp inside out, at least as far as a prisoner could. 
his phenomenal memory and attention to detail have preserved for posterity the inner workings and day-to-day -day life of a German concentration camp like no other memoir. In keeping with a long tradition of making priceless historical documentation available to the public, the Hoover Institution has published a fundamental source on the genocidal machine that devastated Europe during the Second World War. The English edition will reach a far broader audience than Kwiatkowski could have ever imagined, and it will serve as his poignant legacy to his fellow prisoners who never left Majdanek. In preparing this talk, I drew upon the introduction to the Polish edition written by Wojciech Lenarczyk, director of the history department of the State Museum at Majdanek, and the introduction to the English edition written by Professor Norman Neymark of Stanford University, which gives a very uh, comprehensive um, overview of the historical context of the uh, concentration camp system and also more details about Majdanek itself. I also want to take the opportunity to thank Professor Marek Hodakiewicz, the Kościuszko Chair in Polish Studies and Director of the Center for Intermarium Studies at the Institute of World Politics for the invitation to participate in the Spring Symposium, and also to the team at IWP, namely Hannah McGann and Katie Staffy for organizing the technical aspect of this talk. 485 Days at Majdanek is available in hardcover and ebook from the Hoover Press and Amazon.com. And you can also buy the Polish edition through the website of the State Museum at Majdanek. I'm partial as the translator, but I highly encourage you to read Kwiatkowski's memoir if you have any interest in World War II history, and particularly as it relates to Poland, the landscape where the war's greatest tragedies unfolded. Though somber reading, it is also a tale of survival against immense odds and offers a lesson in the power of faith in God to give you the strength to persevere and to never give up. Thank you.